In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 10, verse 29, through the end of chapter 11. Joshua and the Israelites press on in their military campaign to conquer the southern and northern regions of the Promised Land. Throughout these victories, they follow the command of Yahweh to utterly destroy these cities and their people, leaving no survivors. Their success in capturing the cities, along with their respective kings and inhabitants, demonstrates the fulfillment of God's promise to give the land to the Israelites, and it highlights Joshua's unwavering obedience in executing the Lord's instructions. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, September 29th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, join me in welcoming my guest to the program. It's the Reverend Matthew Cush, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Aurora, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Cush. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Well, thank you so much, Phil. It's good to be here today. Excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. This is the first time that you've been on the air with me. I'm not sure if you've been on some other KFUO programs before, but first time with me. So I like to ask you to share just a little bit about yourself and how God is working through you and your congregation. Oh, well, thank you. No, this is actually my first time in any KFUO program. So it's a joy to be here. Um, well, welcome. For this. Thank you. Um, so God has been very good about myself. I'm been a senior pastor here at St. Paul Aurora for about two years now, been out of the ministry for about six years or so, um, or seven years, sorry. And we're just doing a lot of good work here. We have a school, uh, preschool through eighth grade, in which we go into our community. We also have a vibrant youth program that outreaches to many kids and many high schoolers that either have a, don't have a church home or are here or their church might not provide a youth group. So we've been doing that as well as working with homeless ministry in our area through our uh, partner, the Hesed House in Aurora. So lots of fun and lots of amazing things we've been doing. Um, and actually, I was a very joyous thing to join you today as it's not only um, St. Michael and all of his archangels, but it's also my wife's birthday, too. So it's a wow. joyous thing. Excellent. Your wife's birthday. Happy birthday to her. It also happens to be our uh, our board operator's birthday, Dan. His birthday's today. And uh, oh, I got a birthday coming up next week. There's just birthdays all around. My daughter's was last week. I, you know, I just, it, it seems like maybe about eight or nine, about nine months ago, it might have been cold. So <laughs> you never know. I know. Well, it's, it's amazing. It's uh, she says, though, she's uh, very blessed to have her birthday, not only on um, St. Michael and all of his Archangels Day, but also World Heart Day. I have two children myself, uh, two boys. One is going to be born here in a couple of months. Um, and our first son, Daniel, is three years old, and it's uh, he's a very special little boy. What a blessing. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the air, and I'm very glad to have you your first uh, KFU appearance here with us on Thy Strong Word. Our text today is going to be the second half of Joshua chapter 10, all of uh, sorry, Joshua chapter 11. But before we get into that, I always like to ask the guests to lead us in prayer, and that's what I'm going to do right now. Would you lead us in prayer, please? I would absolutely love to. Let's bow our heads in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can go and study your word and see how your mighty hand has led victory for Joshua and the people of Israel. As we remember and celebrate these victories today, we ultimately know that you provide the victory in our lives as well. The victory over sin, death, and the power of the devil by your Son dying upon the cross. And so as we study the victories here, may be we assured of our eternal victory in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you said, all of these victories point forward to that ultimate victory that Yahweh or God gives us through Jesus Christ. But right now, we're kind of in the middle of the conquest of the southern area of Canaan. And yesterday, we talked about this famous battle which uh, during which God made the sun stand still. Uh, anything else about what has been happening that you want to catch the people up on? Absolutely. So— Right now, we're kind of in the middle of a big war, basically, that's going on in Canaan with some pretty big victories that the writer of Joshua wants to highlight and seeing really just how God is doing everything. I think the one thing that I love about, especially in that last battle, was how they kind of came to defend this people, the Gibeonites, that they weren't supposed to be in a uh, treaty with, but they got tricked, but God honored that treaty and actually saved them. And also that even when fighting the Israelites, I mean, they did a great job of defeating the five army alliance, but uh, it was actually God who actually with his hailstone killed more than them. So even here we have, this is God's victory. And it's very important to know that because as we'll see kind of going on in the conquering of the Southern cities and the Northern cities is that Israel shouldn't be able to do this, and yet they are able to continually win against superior forces because God is with them. And it can seem very brutal, but, I mean, that is unfortunately war, and it's brutal and it's heavy, but God is using it to help his people and to save them. Indeed. Well, let's get into our text for today, and that's going to be chapter 10, starting with verse 29. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And Yahweh gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And Yahweh gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Joshua, uh, pardon me, then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. 
I'm going to pause right there. It's going to continue in this manner for a couple more cities. But we see here, at least what stands out to me, is that it is Yahweh giving it and its kings and its people into the hands of Joshua and the Israelites. Uh, proper credit is being uh, is being doled out, right? Yahweh is the victor. Uh, but at the Absolutely. same time, they are listening to God's command, which is a command that we've struggled with on this show, and that is to devote everybody to destruction. But as they come in, they're going to uh, be taking over these cities. So take us through this as sort of, it's very succinct, but it's also really gruesome if you think about what's going on. But the Lord's judgment is against the Canaanites, and he's exercising that judgment by means of Joshua. Absolutely. And, and to be fair, we have to uh, I mean, address the elephant in the room. This is bloody warfare, and it's very fast. I'm, I go back to um, in Exodus 23, when Moses and, was gathering the people under Mount Sinai, and he said in uh, 2320, I'm going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion for my name is in him. And we know this um, angel to be the one that Joshua has seen and is given, given to destruction. But it even goes further. And when it says um, in verses um, 20. A, uh, 29 is, I will drive them out. I will send hornets in front of you, and they will drive you, the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hethites away from you. So you can almost imagine, I almost imagine like the people of Israel after um, the slaughter of the five kings and earlier in this chapter are almost like a plague of locusts, just descending and devouring and conquering everything in their path. And the Lord is like putting all of the people in confusion ahead of them. And when you read it, it's this is just fulfilling what Moses said and what the Lord promised uh, to his people, even back in the wilderness, that this is a fulfillment, and we're seeing the fulfillment of God's promise here. Oh, absolutely. And, and not only are we seeing that, I think that when people look back on these texts— they're always looking for ways to tear apart God's word. And and we've already talked about the struggles with the bloodiness of the warfare. Of course, World War One is not any less bloody. <laughs> Perhaps no, today— No, it's exactly probably more bloody. If you yeah, exactly. Perhaps today warfare is often done behind screens, but there still is casualties. And, there, and it's still you know not necessarily God's will for our lives. He may use our propensity to war to exercise his judgment, but that's certainly not God's design for creation. But with that said, I've even seen some scholars, as I was reading through, that they deny the historicity of the Israelite conquest because they say, you know, when we look at it from an archaeological point of view, we don't see evidence for all the destruction of all these cities um, and I bring that up because that's one of the, I guess, uh, counterpoints that those who are hostile to the Bible like to make. But I would illustrate that, well, yeah, three cities were destroyed, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor. And we see them specifically mentioning Jericho over and over because that was like their first, you know, their first victory. But they're not going around destroying all the cities. They're going around destroying all the people. They're removing the people. Yeah. You don't destroy yeah. cities that you want to then turn around and live in. 
Um, now that that of course exactly. is offensive enough, but that's why I just think it's funny when people like to try to use archaeological evidence to disprove the Bible. If anything, the archaeological evidence shows us that there's a lot of warfare going on during this time. Absolutely, and we have to remember. I think what we like to do is when we read texts like Joshua, and I mean, it goes on to other parts of the Old Testament, especially with like Judges, and even in like Exodus and Numbers, we see the people of Israel. We have to remember the people of Israel at this time, they're almost like a warrior people. These are not people who are, you know, you know, living off the land. They've been established for a long time. This is, these are people who wandered in the desert for 40 years. And God used that wandering time, yes, for punishment, yes, for these things, but to sharpen them as he like would sharpen a blade. And he made them into a warrior nation with Joshua being the head of that um, uh, earthly army. And so when we try to take away, well, God wouldn't do this, or God wouldn't have these things happening to these people, it gets to the point, well, one, you're kind of saying, putting God in the box. If we can say, well, God is God of everything. And I think what we forget is that encompassing everything, he cannot stand evil. He cannot abide evil in any form. And he has to be true to what he said. And so, yeah, he said devote these people and these things to destruction because they are in your land that I have promised you. And I think also we tend to forget in this side of the New Testament and this side of the Old Testament that that was a very big deal to have the land that was promised to the people where God's promises in the Old Testament are intrinsically tied to his promised land of the people of Israel. And so they're cleaning up shop in God's promised place. One of the reasons why I think modern people especially like to look back at these things and and really essentially condemn God for his actions, saying God was wrong to have exercised judgment against these people. I think where some of that is coming from is a denial of the reality that they, indeed we all, deserve worse than that. They don't want to consider that God was just in running out the people of the Canaanite lands because they'd have to confront the reality that Really, we don't. Just, no one deserves any better, uh, and so God's mercy is on display. No, no. If, of course, you, you your faith, hope, and trust is placed in Him correctly, but you know that hope and that trust comes from God Himself. So God is merciful; He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed like this. But again, I think people are more concerned about their own fate when they condemn God for His actions in the Bible. But who are we, right? As I quoted Job before, yeah. where where were you when you laid the foundation of the earth? I mean, God is God, and we've uh, you know, there's that book, right? The domestication of transcendence, right? God has been um, really sort of domesticated, and and we don't. I guess what I'm saying is, where's the fear of the Lord anymore? Where is the fear? I, of I the mean, Lord? I, yeah, I know it's it's to the point where we put God into, or like I said, God into a box, or we like to make God into someone who is understandable for us. And right. I, I tell my congregation in our Bible studies, because we actually are, we just got through with Revelation actually over the summer. I decided to do some light uh, summer Bible study and so I thought the <laughs> book of Revelation fun. be a light study. But in there we see, um, I mean, you see the Old Testament. So if you read the New Testament, God is just as brutal in many ways. You read in what he does to Revelation where he commands 
even the armies of everything. He commands destruction. And I think the thing that modern-day people like to do, and modern-day Christians too, is to become uncomfortable with this idea of God is God of everything. And that means that he, we are accountable to God for everything. And that means that we cannot comprehend except through his son, Jesus Christ, and see him through those, that, about what he wants to do. And I mean, if God did not spare his own son, death upon the cross for the sins of the world, how much more do we deserve that death? And how much more do we deserve this eternal punishment? And it's scary, because he's God. He can literally just, you know, snap his fingers, and we could all just disappear off the face of the earth. But he doesn't because he loves us and cherishes us. And even here, we see that he fulfills his word. God is, a, if nothing else, fulfills the word that he has sent. And we can actually take almost heart in this, that he promised the Israelites to, you know, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to go out, and it's going to be like this. I will be with you. And in the same way, we see this happening here in Joshua 10 and 11 to come. But we also see that there's, okay, God actually keeps his promises. He's with his people. And we actually see a God who acts and a God who casts out the wicked and who does something. I think one of the things that we often forget is that if we want God to do something, he's going to act in his own justice and according to the promises he has made and not to what we want. Well, one of the things you said that was particularly compelling is that God is the God of everything, and we have a hard time grasping that. And, and, and I was thinking about the other ways we have a hard time grasping that. See, even Christians have a hard time grasping that God is the God of all things, not just those who put their faith, hope, and trust in him. So when we <laughs> see him bringing the undesirables into the kingdom, sometimes we protest, you know, sinfully protest. Oh, yeah. we go, we're like Jonah. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, I I also think that we have this idea, especially in modern times where it's like, well, that's good for you, but because we're so pluralistic and everybody's so postmodern, then if you're not a Christian, then of course the Christian principles don't apply to you. Well, guess what? (laughs) There is only one God. (laughs) Even if you are not a Christian, God's still real. His law still matters. You still will be judged. And, um, so the whole point of evangelism isn't to go out and say, Hey, we got a good God on our side. Come join us. No, it's about to tell them about the one and only true and real God. And then, of course, how that one and true God actually loves them so much already that he's already forgiven their sins. And, and that's what's so great. You don't have to go out and convince people that they, that they need to, uh, you know, uh, study uh, the scriptures and decide for themselves whether or not Christianity is the right path for them. That's the only path there is. Yeah, it is. And we see that. And I love, and actually, there's so much freedom in being able to say this and also be freedom there. Like, you know what? You want to answer all these questions or why would God do this or why would God do that? I don't know. He's God. And he's the one who is the ruler here. And it actually is emboldening to know that, you know, God is the God of everything. God is the God who can, does all of this stuff, and we can't comprehend that. He is infinite, and we are finite, and that's somewhere in there. We were not, we're never going to understand God, as you kind of was with Job. Who are you? Were you there when I formed the foundations of the seas, when I created the mountains? And we get to this point where, you know, I just see God as who he is and what he does. And yeah, it can be terrifying. Yeah, 
I don't understand why God is doing these things. I don't understand why God doesn't just wave a hand and everything is okay, but that's okay because I know what he's done for me through his Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know that's what he, and I know how I can say that love and how I can express that love and also at the same time say that this is a God who is God and I have to let him be that. Oh, Agreed, a hundred percent. And and again, that's a struggle that we all have. You know, God doesn't reveal to us everything that we want to know. He's only revealed what we need to know. And so, when we start searching for the hidden will of God, we like to call that the absconding will of God. <laughs> I use that term at our local uh, um, interdenominational pa- pastors little group that I meet with once a month. And uh, I talked about the absconding will of God. They made fun of me for a good while. Uh, but I said, you know, you got to remind the folks why they pay you. Uh, but all that means is God hides part of himself from us. And we have Ooh. to really respect that. But it also is for our own good. I'm reminded of a story, and I hope I get the details right. But this was from Corey Ten Boom, for people who know about her. She's an author, and um, she wrote about the Holocaust and things like that. And Corrie ten Boom wrote – she was on a train with her father and uh, her, her father – or she turns to her father and she was reading a book and she sees the word – something about sex sin. And she asks her dad – she says – she was a little girl and she says, what does this mean, the sex sin? And her daughter didn't – I'm sorry, her father didn't answer. And then as they were getting off the train, he said, I need you to carry the luggage and she starts to carry the luggage but it's too heavy for her little like a <laughs> seven-year-old frame and – and he yeah. says, so it is, so it is with answers. You know, sometime I would be a pretty poor father, her father said, if I let a little girl carry such a burden. And the same things with God. He knows the answers to all of our questions, but, you know, we're, we're still infants. <laughs> we're not ready for the answers to some of these things. You know, if God were to reveal just the absolute majesty of his sovereignty in a way that that was just pure and unadulterated and and not filtered by how he wants us to be known through Christ. We couldn't we couldn't handle it. And so this is one of those cases where we trust that God knows the answer and it's it's safe in his keeping. We don't have to know the answers to everything. Absolutely. And I mean, if I can to remark on that story, it's just, I mean, you can see this in so many ways in everyday life. Um, hopefully you'll this is okay to say this, but I was having my son Daniel. He was born with a uh, congenital heart defect called hypoplastic left heart, where basically he was born uh, with half a heart. He had to have major open heart surgery at a week old of life and we'll, and keep going. And, you know, I said there and saying, okay, God, why is this happening? And, you know, I had a lot of people coming to me and eventually like, oh, this is going to be happening for a reason. Everything is okay. And, you know, it, it was a product of sin and living in a sinful world. And I didn't know how to handle that. And finally, um, it gets to the part where I think it is where I, I can't remember the verse or the name off the top of my head, but it's the whole, my grace is sufficient for you. And along with that, it is that I work all things for your good. It might not be what our, but he knows what the ultimate good is and what God is. And I've seen through so many things that, my son has gone through, how his life has been done. He wouldn't even know he has a heart condition. Um, right now, he's three years old. But I've seen so many things that God has worked through that, and also things that I don't know he's worked through. Hmm. And so I think it's actually very comforting to sometimes to not know what God is up to, 
But what he does reveal is that he loves and he cares for his people and for all of his creation. And I think when you look at the conquest of the southern cities, when you look at the conquest of Canaan, we have to keep that in mind. Is we don't know what God is up to all the time, and that's a good thing. But we know that he works all things for the good of those who love him. And I think that is how we should read and need to read when these things happen, because, yes, this is God being brutal. Yes, this is God being God. But we need to know that he works all things for those who love him. And that love is his love and not the love that we have, or this understanding of love that we have here on earth either. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story, and it is a good illustration that we just don't know, and even though we might find ourselves at some point angry with God, he's loving enough to let us be angry until we figure just what you said out, <laughs> that God God is in control. He knows. Wow. Well, let's go ahead and read the rest of uh, chapter absolutely, 10 absolutely. before we head through the break, uh, starting with verse 38. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it, and he captured it with its kings and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. And he left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and to its king. So he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathe, just as Yahweh God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because Yahweh, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. Yeah, that last verse is important, too. He was really knocking these out quick. I mean, it was like day after day after day. It's another city, another king. Um Obviously, God was on their side. I don't think even the most powerful force could probably manage to accomplish what these Israelites who were up against, as you said earlier, people of war, uh, oftentimes with much more advanced technology, and yet one after the other, they're just dropping like flies. Absolutely, absolutely. And I don't want to kind of go, I want to talk a little bit about the a vast, I mean, the outnumbered odds. But I think there's actually some better time to talk about that in chapter 11, um, especially when we get to see some of that weaponry that are being brought to arms against the people of Israel. But I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the amount of speed which this is, I mean, what was in here um, in verse 34 and 35 is him going to Lachish, um, to Eglon. And in that same day, they captured the city and struck it down. That's not how sieges work in right. any time. I mean, it literally, it, to capture a city in a day, you would have to have like an overwhelming odds or overwhelming firepower um, back then. And the fact is, is that they didn't have these things. They were just, honestly, they didn't even have the modern technology that these Canaanites and that these right. people in had. And yet, God is sweeping them through because it is the Lord. He said, I will cause confusion to go amongst your peoples and they will flee from you um, in Exodus um, when he was talking about Sinai in Exodus 23. And we see this happening where it's almost like, a. I mean, I go to the, you brought up World War One. I, I go to World War Two, the Blitzkrieg almost, this fast lightning stuff. But even that doesn't compare to what God is doing here because it literally is, a band of 
basically footmen going against walled cities and just conquering them. That, that doesn't happen in any time of war that any tactician or historian will tell you that this is just nuts what's happening here. And it's all because of God, the is- God of Israel fought for Israel. Well, as we contemplate just how amazing God's ability to cause his people to be victorious, we are going to take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere, please. We'll be back and we'll continue where we left off. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Matthew Cush. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Aurora, Illinois. Remember, you can reach out to me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can drop a note just to say hi or ask a question. And when you do, let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. But for now, let's head back to the Bible, where we are just now uh, at the end of chapter 10. But anything else about chapter 10 that you want to cover before we move into chapter 11? I think we pretty much covered the really important parts. I think what we have to understand, one more thing before we go, though, is the amount of land that was conquered is very sizable. And the area around it is taking notice of what Joshua and the Israelites are doing. And because of that quick southern campaign um, in Canaan, well, people took notice, and they're going to actually bring to bear all the might that this area has. But I don't want to spoil that a little bit too quickly for the next chapter. (laughs) All right, well, sounds good. This next chapter is really going to focus on their campaign more toward the north. I'll be in chapter 11, starting with verse 1, and once again from the English Standard Version. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of um, Achshaph, (laughs) and to the kings (laughs) who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Nephothdor, to the west to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom, 
to fight against Israel. Now, we're only five verses in, but, you know, we've seen the quick one after the another succession of these amazing battles and the Lord's fighting for Israel. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, as they <laughs> head north, suddenly they look out, there's this another coalition, right? These guys are good about banding together against the Israelites, but there's this new coalition and, oh my goodness, what's the Bible say? A horde like sands upon the seashore, they couldn't be counted. Um, even though they've been doing a good job putting their faith, hope, and trust in the Lord, without having read another sentence further, I'd have to say, I, I imagine this would strike some fear into their hearts. At least that's what I expect. Oh, absolutely. And it, we have to remember, these people are battle-hardened warriors um, on both sides. And I almost, um, it's almost like, uh, if you remember uh, Lord of the Rings, when like you see, when you're standing oh, on the yeah. wall, or, and you're seeing this vast horde of like enemies, siege weapons, black uh, troops, and garbed troops, and everything, and you just see that in this wall of this Bear. And I can imagine that's what Israel felt like. Here's one group of people. Yeah, okay, yeah, they've got some allies um, through the Gibeonites, and they have mighty men there. But, I mean, this is, I mean, just to put this in perspective, this is the entire region of Canaan coming against the Israelites. This is not just a couple of cities from uh, around the area. This is the whole land, even the south of Arabah, which is actually near the southern kingdom, is where they're getting these troops from, and they're massive. They've got chariots, which um, is a very big deal in ancient warfare, that they have these almost like, if you would equivalent, it's basically you've got a bunch of infantrymen against um, like an entire legion of Abram's tanks, right. essentially what you're going up against. And that would put the fear of, well, pardon the pun, the fear of God into anyone <laughs> um, when they're looking at this massive horde that you have to go against. It's frightening. But you said it puts the fear of God. I was thinking they're hoping it puts the fear of Baal and Ashtaroth in them. But of course it won't because their gods are nothing and our God is true. But yeah, you look at that. That uh, Lord of the Rings analogy is perfect because I am. I really imagine that. And you, and you mentioned also that they brought up some southern troops. So you're also, they're equipping themselves with people who are looking to get back. Right? They're, they've, they've seen the destruction they're looking to avoid destruction of their own territory. So not only are this are they just a people who are war-hungry and war-mongers, but they have every reason in the world to fight tooth and nail. I would imagine that even if we knew a lot more, and I frankly don't, but if we knew a lot more about Canaanite interpersonal politics, I bet a lot of rivalries are being set aside for them to join together against Israel. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it gets to the point where, I mean, they're bringing up the big guns for this. I mean, when we have, I always say, when the Bible mentions something, we should look at it as important when they specifically mention details. And here the, um, the author of Joshua is saying they're bringing up horses and chariots. And I hope, and I want to just get this right here, is that the chariots were the modern day for them, the modern-day Abrams tank, the modern-day super big weapon 
And it, this is not the chariots that we're thinking of when you like, oh, it's like the racing chariots. No, these were like where three people could stand on them. They had blades on their wheels with two draft horses. And they have one driver. One person has a short bow that could pierce through armor and flesh. And the other one, a long spear to come down and just swath through everything. This is... This is literally bringing out the big guns to deal with Israel. And it's literally impossible for them to win at this point, just by a number of standards and a technological standards alone. Agreed. So as I said earlier, they would have been afraid. At least that's what I think. Well, I think the Bible is going to prove that out. Let's start with verse 6, or continue, I should say, with verse 6. And Yahweh said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And Yahweh gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and uh, Mishripoth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as Yahweh had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and he burned their chariots with fire. So again, taking another break here. So yeah, I mean, he says, and, and I think the Hebrew might be even better rendered, stop <laughs> being afraid. Right? Quit yes, being yes, afraid. Stop it. Don't be afraid, people. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I and I think it's like, do not be afraid. No, this is like, okay, don't be like, stop. I got this. Don't worry. Right. right. Yeah. I, I, and I think that connotation is important because we see that with angels too. Angels show up and they say, don't be afraid as if they're saying, um, don't start being afraid now. And you know, the person could say I'm not <laughs> or whatever. It's always like a, I recognize that you're terrified and really you have every right to be, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be, because tomorrow, in this case, I'm going to give over all of them to Israel. And there's really zero reason for them to doubt the Lord's word. I mean, how could they doubt it? They've seen the Lord hand over one after the other already. But anyway, let's keep on going with 10, and we'll, we'll add to the conversation. So Joshua mm -hmm. turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except for Hazor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder, but every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did, and he left nothing undone that Yahweh had commanded Moses. All right, brother, it looks like we're bringing Moses back into the picture. Uh, it looks mm -hmm. like God had commanded something to Moses, and they're honoring this. I love it when we hear about this. Uh, take us through it. What What did Moses say that's causing this now, long after Moses is dead? Um, this one is where I'm trying to remember this, is where he, God commanded Moses to do these 
things. And um, he would go, Moses commanded Joshua, I think right before entering into the promised land. Um, it goes to this point where he says, go and do these things and the Lord will be with you. Um, well, I do know and, at the very least, at the very least, we do have Deuteronomy 7, right? So yeah. he he, yeah, so it says, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, right, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, all those folks, the Jebusites, they're more numerous and mightier than you. Seven nations, he says, when Yahweh your God gives them over to you, you shall defeat them and you must devote them to complete destruction and show them no mercy. I wonder if that's what he's talking about there. I think he is, and I think it's, once again, this is just to, not only to Joshua, but this is all the people of Israel um, in saying that he is your God. Um, do not, and even goes here, do not leave any of the gods or any of the high places there, the Asherah poles or the um, Baal temples, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And so he is commanding his people here to do these things, and they're being fulfilled. And, I mean, this is kind of the biggest thing for me that's kind of the wonder is Israel's actually listening to what this command is. That's true. That's true. We would actually expect them to quickly forget God's commands, as they often do, but no, they remember. And it's for their own good, right? Because exactly. being being merciful, saying, well, we're going to be merciful to the Canaanites, and we don't want to wipe them all out. Well, we know that they did end up leaving plenty of Canaanites, and it caused them a lot of trouble. God actually had a good reason for wiping these people out, not only the judgment against the Canaanites, but to avoid the idolatry and the other false worship practices that them commingling with them would bring. Absolutely. He wanted the people to be pure. He wanted his people to have no excuse and no sin run among them and to know that they were the Lord's chosen people. I get back here a little bit to what he was doing with the chariots where they actually, I mean, to hamstring a horse is to literally cut a horse's tendons so they can't be used in battle anymore. And God wanted to make sure that the Israelites didn't take the spoil of victory for themselves. They didn't want to take the technology. You have to rely on God. And I think this is an awesome description of this is actually in Psalm 46, where he says, come and see the works of the Lord who brings devastations on the earth. He makes wars cease through the earth. He shatters the bow. He breaks the spear. He sets the chariots on fire. So this is what the Lord does for his people. It's God's victory and what God is promising. And we have here God fulfilling that promise. It's amazing. A couple of things that stand out to me. One is that, well, you know, they don't get to keep the spoils of the war because very technically speaking, God is the one who won the battle, not them. Exactly. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me you of Yeah, it reminds me of our own good works, right? We do good works. We serve our neighbor, we come to church, we help the needy, we feed the poor, clothe the naked, all that good stuff. Um, and yet we say, well, you know, you don't do any of that to earn your salvation. And, and part of the reason, if no other, is, well, because God is the one doing those good works through you. He gets the credit 
not necessarily you. You don't get to put that in your account <laughs> and earn salvation. Now, there are rewards in heaven. We could talk about that. But but just in terms yeah. of salvation. Well, I also wonder, though, we, we've talked about this numerous times, but the idea that the Canaanites must be completely eradicated. That's mentioned over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20, even in Joshua. Yeah. And we see them doing that. What does that speak to us today? I mean, obviously God has not given us any command to go wipe out anybody who's not a Christian or who's an idolater, but certainly there's something for us to learn about not dwelling among the people who are going to lead us astray. <laughs> yes, we're in the yeah. world, world, but not of it. But what? Just how would you advise someone to put this into practice in their life? Oh, absolutely. Great question, by the way. I... For me, this is difficult a little bit because we live in such a pluralistic society. We live in a society that is very much so, you know, I can have all things are good for me and you have to respect that and we have to deal along this way. For the Christian people, it's to, you know, don't yoke yourself. And even Paul says this, don't yoke yourself to unbelievers and um, doing this. And it's the way that, you know, it's not because you want to be mean or you want to be, you know, out like say, well, you're an other person. I'm not going to talk to you. But it's honestly for you it, because it's just the small slippery slope where if you are in a place where you know that, you know, God forbids this and God says don't do this, but you say, well, you know, I think I can handle it. I think I can like do this um, particular sin or, you know, I can be around these people and, and, Maybe want you want to do good by them. Maybe you want to like befriend them, and that's all well and good. But you know, when they start doing the practices of sin, whether that be you know drug use or you know relations that are not biblically sound, and you say, well, okay, I'll join in on those things. It's kind of like, whoa, hold the phone here. And so it's along the lines of if you're struggling with this, is you're meant to be holy. You're meant to look different. And what's the whole reason why God tells us to cut these things out of our lives to, if you're going back to even, I think what, what you said yesterday is if your eye causes you to sin, uh, pluck it out. It's this very visceral way of saying if there is something that you shouldn't be doing, don't do it. Not just for your own sake, but then for other people's sake, because they should see your good deeds and praise your father who is in heaven. And so the Christian should look not like the world, but look better than the world. But when the Christian starts looking like the world, they actually look worse than the world. Because oh, yeah. that is where God's, you see, this is what God has told us to do, but you're not doing it. Then we actually look worse than the most flagrant sinner who doesn't know God. And I think that's where, why God said to the Israel, do not let these people stay wipe them out, destroy them, because I am your God, you are my chosen people, you will bring light to the nations, you will bring the whole world to know me through you. And then what happens is so sad, because they don't. And then what happens to what God looks like to the world? I mean, we often go, he is God, but we're still the people who people experience God with. We're the mm-hmm. first contact someone has. Like, I always say this, you are the first person sometimes, you yourself, that will have contact with Jesus. 
And oh, the world yeah. should always see that, you know, we are, yes, uh, Pastor Boo or Pastor Kush. Yes, people are going to see that, but they shouldn't see that first. They should see Jesus first. He has to decrease. We must decrease so he may increase. But if we increase in ourselves, then God decreases in us. And then that is a problem. And not only a problem for God's will for our lives, but also for the world. So as a Christian, we have to abstain from the things that are evil, even though everyone might not say it is, you know, it's okay. We have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. We have to hold ourselves to the standard which God gives us. And he does it out of love and compassion because he wants people to see, hey, you're different. Hey, you're not like everything else. And to come and to see, hey, the reason why is because we have a loving Savior who has died on the cross, who has taken away our sins. And here, let's get to know him together. Let's talk about him. But we have to, you know, the buck stops with that. We have to be better. And when we're not, well, we'll see it coming up here in later parts of Joshua and later parts of the Old Testament, where when Israel looks like the world around them, they actually look far worse than the world around them. Mm. Well, to reemphasize what you've been saying, you know, the people, the unbelievers out there aren't necessarily reading the Bible or searching for God or searching for the scripture. They're looking at you, though, and they're looking at you yeah. very closely they're, they're, because there's part of them where the Holy Spirit perhaps is working on them that they don't want to believe in a God because they're afraid of their sins. So they're going to look at you and try to try to denounce that God who might judge them because of your own sin. Uh, and and uh, the example I like to use, and I do, we do need to get going, but the example I like to yeah, use yeah, is sorry. that if a pastor does, let's say a pastor breaks the law, um, unfortunate, it happens. The newspaper leads with local pastor breaks the law. If someone who just works at Best Buy or something, which is a great place to work, I'm not saying it's not, but if someone just works retail <laughs> and they break the law, it never says grocery store clerk breaks the law, unless, of course, it's at the grocery store, I guess. But <laughs> So what will lead, of course, is the what, what the world perceives as hypocrisy. So if you're a devout Christian and you tell people and they say you're a devout Christian and yet your life doesn't match what your words are, People are going to notice that right away. But yeah, we do have to keep going. I could talk about this all day, but I want to make sure oh, that we get to the end of our chapter. Let's start with 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made a war, pardon me, he made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites in the inhabitants of Gibeon. And we will know about that later. They took them all in battle for it was Yahweh's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that Yahweh had spoken to Moses, 
and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So that's the end of our chapter. It seems like this battle, as opposed to those cities in the south, it seems like this one was drawn out a little more, if I read that correctly. And I think you did. I think it, once again, we saw the beginning, it was the entire land of Canaan that was in the northern country attacking these people. And so the fighting was fierce and long. I mean, after this, we get to and Joshua, he gives out the land, and we have almost Joshua seeming to be an older man at this point, um, and getting kind of tired, but still, the Lord gave him the victory. They still were going up there, and I love um, what it says, the Lord hardened their hearts, and the same way he hardened his heart of Pharaoh in Exodus, and it was for a reason, for because the Lord's mighty hand was at work. And once again, we see here God doing his godly thing to make Israel prosper. And now, and I think it's very funny, though, that, you know, after all of this time that they went, the land was finally at, not peace, but a rest from war. And I think that's a good distinction is there was a time now of almost like a, whew, a breath of like relief that it's finally over with for the time. Oh, sounds good. They have this little break. There's some peace, and boy, peace is uh, so much more precious after a long period of conflict and war. And, and I think it indicates that while there is war, there is peace to come, not to allegorize it too much, but it certainly applies in our life too. We live now in the warfare of striving toward the new heavens and the new earth, and the battle is already won. We've been told that sin, death, and Satan has already been handed over. God has mm-hmm. already been victorious. But there's some fighting to do until we get the peace. Um, Well, brother, we are at the end of our program, and I'm so glad that you joined us today. And as a first-time guest, you did an amazing job. I'm so thankful to have you on the program. Thank you. Hopefully hopefully you'll come back. Yeah, I hope you come back soon. Folks, my guest has been the Reverend Matthew Cush, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and School in Aurora, Illinois. Well, friends, join us Monday when we open up chapter 12. Now, this chapter is a little different. It serves as a captivating historical ledger. I I know that doesn't sound like it would be the case, but it meticulously lists the kings and territories conquered by the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua. It's a compelling testament to the fulfillment of God's promise and the relentless determination of the Israelites as they continue to secure their foothold in the promised land. But it's a great conversation. In fact, I'll give you a little hint. We've already recorded it. I can tell you it's a great conversation. So join us, um, and that's going to be on Monday for that. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.